We are almost live. Hey everyone, and welcome to this very special evening featuring Dr. Codwell B. Esselstyn Jr. from the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. The topic is reversing heart disease, and I know many of you are here to support the Healthy Road Support Group, which was founded by two social workers, Betty Peoples-Wheeler and Vernita Bradford. They were, they were looking for support for their new healthy road lifestyle. So we'd like, like to welcome everyone here that's watching live with us on Zoom or watching on YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter. And to introduce our special guest for the evening, we have Dr. Hans Deal, who is the clinical advisor to the Healthy Road Support Group. Please welcome Dr. Hans Deal. Hello, everybody. It's great being on your program, Chef AJ. Thanks for making it possible. You know, as a long-term admiring friend of Dr. and Mrs. Esselstyn, it is my pleasure to more formally introduce to you this couple that has left their footprints on a huge multitude of now healthier hearts and healthier people on several continents. You know, it's Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn who turned from one of America's high-ranking surgeons to becoming one of America's foremost and best-loved health promoters. It's an amazing change. Actually, with his whole family involved in lifestyle medicine and healthier hearts, the Esselstyn family today probably represents America's foremost health promotion dynasty. <laughs> well, may I present to you as best-selling author, researcher, and outstanding speaker, my friend, Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn. Welcome. Hans, thank you for those uh, kind words. And what a delight it is to be with uh, AJ and and yourself uh, this evening and your and your friends who are tuning in. Since we've got a lot of uh, ground to cover, we want to try to see if we can eliminate, eliminate the leading killer of women and men in Western civilization. We best get started. Now, <clears throat> first of all, Anna, this isn't turning. This isn't advancing. Oh. <laughs> This is going to be exciting tonight. Now imagine if you were a cardiac surgeon and you decided that you were going to take your shingle and hang it out in rural China, Okinawa, the Papua's Highlanders, Central Africa. You better forget it. And you better, better plan on selling pencils. Why? You're not going to have any surgery. Why? Because these cultures will largely thrive on whole food, plant-based nutrition. Now I want to share with you right now at the outset, the oldest slide in my possession here. I took this picture in 1968 when I was leaving Vietnam, having spent a year there as a combat surgeon. And the whole rationale for this slide is to remind the audience that when we autopsied our GIs who died in combat in Korea, fully 80% uh, of those average age GIs already had gross evidence of coronary disease that you could see without a microscope. Not enough for their coronary events yet, but here the disease was already in its infancy. So that same study was then repeated 45 years later. Now what do they find? This time looking at young women 
and men between the ages of 17 and 34 who had died of accidents, homicides, and suicides, now the disease is ubiquitous. Imagine that. You graduate from high school in this country, you get a diploma. And also you get what? You get the foundation for heart disease. Not enough again yet for your <clears throat> for the early manifestation of the disease from a clinical standpoint, but it really makes us understand why it is that at the by the end of the late 40s, we now see in this country this tsunami of cardiovascular disease because we've started it early in life. Now here we had a chance to really get it right. World War II, <laughs> the Axis powers of Germany overran the low countries of Holland, Belgium, and they occupied Denmark and Norway. And characteristically, they took away their, <clears throat> they took away their livestock for their troops. So these Western European nations were without their cattle, their sheep, their goats, their pigs, their chickens, their turkeys were gone. Now, in 1951, Dr. Strom and Jansen looked at the death rates from heart attack and stroke in Norway. Because remember now, since the Germans had taken away their livestock, all these Western European cultures were plant-based. And let's do this together. Let's look at the upper left on this slide and we will see in Norway in 1927, the rate of heart attack and strokes was going up. 1930, going up. 1935, going up. 1939, in come the Germans, down goes the heart attack and stroke weight. <laughs> Who knew these Germans were these great public health educators? <laughs> but look what happened in 1945, the cessation of hostilities in the European theater, back comes the meat, Back comes the dairy, back come the strokes, back come the heart attacks. Sadly, we just didn't get it. Now, the plot thickens. If, you on, if you're saying that the artery on the right is highly diseased, you are correct. But if you are saying that when that small opening closes, there'll be a heart attack, that's not quite correct. Because about 10% of heart attacks will come from something this severe. Yes, they will have angina. Yes, they may have shortness of breath. But we're going to see in a minute how 90% of heart attacks occur. Now, I want you to focus the artery on the left. That's the normal one. But even those of you in the back of the room, if, <laughs> if you look carefully, that innermost lining of the artery, there's a little single layer dark line of cells we call the endothelium. E-N-D-O-T-H-U-L-I-U-M. And the endothelium has a remarkable job, which we're going to talk about shortly. But in the usual case in America, when we're eating uh, pizza, cheeseburgers, milkshakes, the cellular elements in our bloodstream begin to get sticky, sticky, sticky. Our endothelial cells get sticky. Our white cells get sticky. Our LDL cholesterol gets sticky. Our platelets get sticky. And I'm going to show you now a slide from Peter Libby from Harvard. And the, the area that is blue is where the blood is flowing. And you can see what separates the blue from the artery wall is those, again, those single layer endothelial cells. But let's do this again 
what we did earlier. Let's focus together in the upper left of this slide. And you will see in the blood, those orange molecules, your LDL cholesterol, which because of the food we've been eating, have been oxidized. Now, what happens is the oxidized LDL cholesterol migrates up against the uh, endothelial artery wall and finds a crack, a fissure, an opening. So now suddenly we have the LDL cholesterol in the subendothelial space, whereupon Peter Libby that from Harvard now changes the color from orange to yellow to indicate that the LDL is now a small, hard, dense, oxidized particle. However, the subendothelial space does not seem to like this very much and calls upon our SWAT team. Those blue macrophage slides or blue macrophage molecules that are also migrating into the subendothelial sp space where it now starts to gobble up like Pac-Man going from left to right. <laughs> it gobbles up all these small, hard, dense LDL particles until we get all the way over to the right-hand side when that macrophage is now absolutely chock full of these particles. And now we change the name as we often do in medicine. It's no longer called the macrophage. It is now called the foam cell. And the foam cell is truly the Darth Vader of this sequence of events. Why? Because the Darth Vader foam cell can make metalloproteinases, stromelicin, elastase, collagenase, myeloperoxidase. What is it that they do that is so bad? Well, what they do is they gradually, as we look at the figure on the left on this slide, they will gradually thin out the cap over the plaque until it gets so thin, as you can see on the figure on the left, if you look at the upper part of the plaque, there is a tiny little crack that is occurring. The cap has ruptured. So now the, the uh, plaque begins to extravasate or ooze out through that crack or that opening. Plaque content will ooze out into the flowing blood where it behaves thrombogenically. That is to say, it tends to make things want to clot. And sure enough, if we look at the middle figure here, where the cap over the plaque has ruptured, there is now a clot forming, and the clot is in and of itself self-propagating. So in a matter of minutes, it now goes, the figure on the right, look, the entire opening or lumen of the vessel is completely 100% shut. All the downstream heart muscle here is now suddenly deprived of oxygen and nutrients, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is 90% of your heart attacks. Now, if I do my job correctly this evening, hopefully all of you and maybe your friends and relatives can make themselves heart attack proof. How are you gonna do that? You're gonna make yourself heart attack proof, not with a drug, not with a stent, not with bypass surgery, you're going to make yourself heart attack proof by changing your biochemistry. How are you going to do that? With plant-based food. When that happens and you've changed your biochemistry, all that cascade of events that I've just described, the LDL cholesterol migrating into the subendothelial space, the uh, formation of the foam cell and the metalloproteinases, those are all gone. You are not going to thin out the cap 
over your plaque. As a matter of fact, you are going to strengthen the cap over the plaque. And if you strengthen the cap over the plaque, it cannot rupture. And if it cannot rupture, you will have made yourself heart attack proof. Now, forget the x-ray on this particular slide, but I want you to focus on the end of the artery where the art artist has shown us that half of the artery is filled with plaque and the other half is still open. And if you look carefully at the open area, you can see it is lined with these lovely endothelial cells. Now, we used to think until about 1980 that the endothelial cells were nothing more than these cute little red bricks that were lining these wonderful pipes of ours. However, that all changed in 1980 when Dr. Fershgott, working in his laboratory in Brooklyn, was taking the largest blood vessel, the aorta, from the rodent, from the rat, and he would make this sort of elliptical spiral staircase cut on it and then he, through the endothelium, then he would immerse it in a bath of saline and it would constrict. But one day, Dr. Fershgott said, no cut, no injury to the endothelium. He immersed it in the saline and it, boom, it dilated. Did it again, it dilated. So now suddenly the race was on globally. What was the EDRF that Dr. Fershgott had discovered? The endothelial derived relaxation factor. And thank heavens, that term was with us only eight years. At the end of eight years, Dr. Murad, Dr. Fershgott, and Dr. Lewignaro discovered that the EDRF was indeed a gas, nitric oxide. And believe it or not, 10 years later, 1998, those three men received the Nobel Prize for discovering nitric oxide. Now, what is it that makes nitric oxide worthy of a, no of a Nobel Prize? Well, let's look at the functions of nitric oxide. One, nitric oxide will keep all the cellular elements within our bloodstream flowing smoothly like Teflon rather than Velcro. It keeps things from getting sticky. Number two, Nitric oxide is the strongest blood vessel dilator in the body. When you climb stairs, the arteries to your heart, the arteries to your legs, they widen, they dilate, that's nitric oxide. Number three, nitric oxide will protect the wall of the artery from becoming thick and stiff or inflamed and protect us from getting high blood pressure or hypertension. Number four is the absolute key. A safe and normal amount of nitric oxide will protect us all from ever developing any blockages or plaques. So literally, everybody on the planet Earth who has cardiovascular disease has their disease because in the, by now in the previous decades, they have so sufficiently trashed, injured, compromised, and turned their endothelial system into an absolute train wreck that they no longer have enough nitric oxide to protect themselves from making blockages and plaque. However, the good news is this. This is not a malignancy. This is a completely benign foodborne illness. And once you can get patients to understand that never, never, ever, ever again are they to pass through their lips a single morsel that is going to further injure an already train wrecked endothelium, because then 
They can stop any further disease progression, and we often see significant elements of disease reversal. Now, usually about this time, if I look to the back of the room or even the front of the room, I can see the audience sort of scratching their head, wondering, my gracious, what is my level of nitric oxide? Well, we really don't have a good technique in the office to do this, but I'll just share with you how it's done on a research basis where you <clears throat> take an ultrasound probe and place it over the uh, brachial artery at the elbow. And there is the readout of what is the uh, diameter of the brachial artery. Then for five minutes, you encircle the upper arm with a blood pressure cuff and, and elevate that uh, above systolic blood pressure so that for five minutes, you have zero blood flow to your forearm and hand. Yes, I've had that done and no, it's not habit forming. Now, the interesting thing is that after you release the cuff and you remeasure with the ultrasound probe in the normal individual, it'll be 30% greater in width in response to the outpouring of nitric oxide when that tourniquet was in place. Now, the third study I wanna share with you about the endothelial cells is Dr. Robert Vogel, who was chairman of cardiology at the University of Maryland when he took a group of healthy young subjects divided into two groups to a certain fast food restaurant that is characterized by arches, which are golden. <laughs> sure enough, the group that had the cornflakes had the brachial artery tourniquet test and it was normal. However, the group that had the hash browns and sausage, within 120 minutes after eating that meal, they were unable to dilate the artery. That single meal of hash browns and sausage had so injured the capacity of their endothelial cells to make nitric oxide, they were unable to dilate the artery. Yet, being young, as they were followed into the late afternoon and uh, early evening, they began to re recover. But you and I know that the next morning for breakfast, probably in this country, it'll be scrambled eggs and bacon. Lunchtime, white bread with mayonnaise and cold cuts. Supper time, it'll be a baked potato with sour cream, lamb chops, vegetables soaked in butter, ranch dressing on the salad, ice cream for dessert. Here in the good old USA, starting in our childhood, we begin to absolutely destroy our endothelial cells. Now. So let's quickly summarize what we've just talked about. The functions of nitric oxide. Prevent stickiness. Vasodilatation is a strong point. It avoids arterial thickening, prevents blockages, prevents smooth muscle migration into the plaque, and can destroy Darth Vader, the foam cell. Now, <clears throat> here are four wonderful defense mechanism molecules that we have, but we only have time tonight to talk about the endothelial cell. However, I want you to know that all four of these have their function absolutely optimized when you're eating whole food, plant-based nutrition. All right, now let's just talk about where the rubber hits the road. This is the first study that I got involved in back in 1985. We had nothing against women. It was simply the way that the patients were sent to me, so it happened to be mostly men. 
ranging in age from 44 to 68. Now, they all had severe triple vessel disease. And the whole focus that I was after here was to have them avoid any of those foods that we now know are going to injure your endothelial production of nitric oxide. So no oil, olive oil, corn oil, soybean oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, coconut oil, palm oil, oil in a cracker, oil in a chip, oil in a piece of bread, oil in a salad dressing, no oil. Also, nothing with a mother or a fish, (laughs) nothing with a mother or a face, meat, fish, chicken, fowl, turkey, and eggs. I don't like sugar. Uh, We want to avoid dairy, milk, cream, butter, cheese, ice cream, and yogurt. I'm not a great fan for nuts. And uh, we don't like caffeinated uh, coffee. All right. So for those of you who had some hesitation about what I just said about oil, here's an example of a peer-reviewed scientific article. Olive, soybean, and palm oil intake have a similar acute detrimental effect over the endothelial function in healthy young subjects. Uh, Now, this is a a bit of research done by Dr. Stanley Hazen at our Cleveland Clinic. And Stanley Hazen was looking at omnivores who eat these animal foods that you see I have listed here. And he was checking out to see what was in their microbiome that permitted them to metabolize lecithin and carnitine, which are the molecules that you see in these animal products. And sure enough, what it was was TMAO, trimethylamine oxide, is a result of the bacteria within the omnivore's gut with the capacity to metabolize lecithin and carnitine into TMA, which is then oxidized by your liver to trimethylamine oxide. And that injures your blood vessels. But the thing that was really quite striking about his research also, Stanley Hazen, when he took somebody who was absolutely 100% pure plant-based, gave them a lamb chop, measured their blood, no TMAO. Why? Because persons who are totally plant-based do not possess the bacteria in their gut, their microbiome, which is the capacity to metabolize lecithin and carnitine into TMAO. Another powerful stroke for whole food plant-based nutrition. Here is what Stanley Hazen found. From the left, you see lecithin and carnitine. Then it goes to the gut bacteria of the omnivore. And then it goes and is metabolized to TMAO. And uh, that injures blood vessels. Now, this is one slide that I have tonight that has nothing to do with cardiovascular disease, but I bring it up because in my mind, it was one of the more empower- empowering moments. This was 2015 when the World Health Organization, imagine that, representatives from all over the planet got together and were able to agree that red meat and processed meat had the same de- amount of carcinogenicity as smoking cigarettes. All right, so here are the foods that we want people to eat. All these marvelous whole grains, all these 101 different types of legumes, lentils, and beans, all those red, yellow, and green leafy vegetables, and some fruit. Now, 
I should take a moment and share with you a modification that I made in our program about a decade ago. And the modification that came about because of my acceptance of the fact that the endothelial production of nitric oxide was age dependent. For example, you never heard of a boy or a girl at age eight having a heart attack. No, they have nitric oxide pouring out of their ears. But by the time <laughs> they're beautifully healthy at age 50, they now have 50% of the nitric oxide they had when they were age 25. And by the time you're 80, you've lost 70%. So the change that I made was a greater stimulation of the endothelial production of nitric oxide. And at the same time, we embraced the newer research that shows us that mankind has an alternate pathway for making additional nitric oxide. So here we go. I need my heart patients to chew not smoothies, not juicing. I need them to chew six times a day a green leafy vegetable that is approximately the size of one quarter of their fist after it has first been steamed five and a half to six minutes. And then it, you must anoint it with several drops of a balsamic or rice vinegar. Why? Because research has shown us that the acetic acid from those vinegars can restore the nitric oxide synthase enzyme, which is contained within the endothelial cell responsible for making nitric oxide. So you're gonna get them to chew this alongside their breakfast cereal. Again, as a mid-morning snack, again with your luncheon sandwich, that's three, mid-afternoon, four, dinner time, five. And of course I adore it when you have that evening snack of arugula or kale. <laughs> Now, the second benefit from comes from chewing the green leafy vegetable, it restores the capacity of your endothelial progenitor cell to replace our senescent, injured, worn out endothelial cells. And the third benefit, and most important, from chewing the green leafy vegetable, when you're chewing a green leafy vegetable, you are chewing a green nitrate. As you chew the green nitrate, it is going to mix with the facultative anaerobic bacteria that reside in the crypts and grooves of your tongue. Those bacteria are going to reduce that nitrate that you've been chewing to a nitrite. When you swallow the nitrite, it is now your own, yes, it is now your own gastric acid, which is going to reduce the nitrite to more nitric oxide. So think about it. What you're doing for minimal expense, no side effects, literally, morning to night, dawn to dusk, you are absolutely restoring all day long nitric oxide, the very molecule, the deficiency of which has given you this disease in the first place. Now there's a caveat, and that is that toothpaste with fluoride or public drinking water with fluoride and mouthwash will injure the beneficial bacteria. And I do not like antacids because and acids will reduce your gastric acidity and you will be unable to reduce the nitrite to more nitric oxide. Wow, what are the top six? They would be kale, Swiss, uh, Swiss chard, spinach, arugula, beet greens and beets. And if you would want the whole group, it goes like this. Bok choy, Swiss chard, kale, collards, collard greens, beet greens, mustard greens, turnip greens, napa cabbage, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cauliflower, cilantro, parsley, spinach, arugula, and asparagus. 
And the reason I go through this with you, you have to know that whole food plant-based nutrition is also great for your memory. (laughs) (laughs) No oil. Now, this is a stat original study. Uh, This is a lipid uh, at five years, they're averaging 137. Notice here that the HDL in these men largely was under 40. Yes, when you are eating whole food plant-based nutrition, which is so anti-inflammatory, as your bodily inflammation is so reduced, your liver makes less and less HDL. Yeah. And look at the LDL. Don't have to get down to 40 or 30, which some of these people are asking. These people, as you'll see shortly, we're reversing their disease, even with an average LDL of uh, 80. Now, I wanted to show you a few angiograms uh, that uh, were representative of this group. And these angiograms were all reviewed in the Cleveland Clinic Angiography Core Laboratory by senior technicians that do this all day long for national medical trials. And it was done in triplicate. So when I give you a percentage of disease reversal, I know that it's accurate. This is a 67-year-old retired uh, pediatrician. You're looking at the left anterior descending coronary artery. And from the arrow on the left to the arrow on the right was described as a 10% improvement. This is about as small as your naked eye can see. A little easier in this 58-year-old factory worker looking at the circumflex artery to the back of the heart. And from the arrow on the left, to the arrow on the white was described as a 20% improvement. This is a 54-year-old security guard, the right coronary artery, and from the arrow on the left to the arrow on the right was described as a 30% improvement. Now, this happens to be a good friend of mine, a fellow surgeon, Joe Crow, and in 1996, at age 44, cholesterol 156, Joe began to get chest pain. He was not diabetic. He was not hypertensive. He was not, uh, he did not have a strong family history and he was not a smoker. Chest pain. Finally, in October of 1996, uh, cardiology worked him up, but they could find nothing. A month later, he was doing a, he was writing post-operative orders when suddenly the elephant was sitting on his chest, searing pain in his left jaw, left shoulder, arm, having a heart attack, whipped down to the cath lab. They start the catheterization, cardiac arrest. They resuscitate him, finish the catheterization. One more cardiac arrest, resuscitate, stabilize, sent to the floors and three days later discharged, but very depressed. Very depressed because at the time of his angiography, and now I've got a little something stuck here. There. At the time of his angiography, the entire lower one-third of his left anterior descending coronary artery was all moth-eaten and diseased over too long a segment. You just can't pound in stent after stent. And it was too far down the artery for bypass. So he was depressed and felt they had done nothing for him. So two weeks after his heart attack, Ann and I had Joe and his wife out for supper. Joe, come on. You've been eating the typical Western diet. You've got the typical Western disease. 
we've got 10 years of data. Why don't you think about going plant-based? And he said, well, yes, I think I'll give it a shot because they couldn't offer me anything else, but I'm not going to take any of those statins. I don't trust them. There are too many side effects. Fine. Now, oh, sorry. Now, <clears throat> Joe became the absolute personification of commitment to whole food plant-based nutrition. Uh, over the next two and a half years, his total cholesterol plummeted. His LDL went from 98 to 38. And then he had another angiogram. Now, up in the surgical office areas, our doors are about three doors apart. So at noontime on the day that I knew earlier that morning, Joe had had his follow-up angiogram. I walked over and opened his door, and there he was, sitting behind the desk. Joe, I understand you had the follow-up angiogram earlier uh, this morning. Uh, mind uh, sharing it with me? He got up from his behind his desk, came around, put his arms around me, and said, I think we're doing okay. So I said, well, would it be okay if I could see the angiogram? He said, sure. Now you can see that was pretty exciting for us because really it, the disease had been vanquished. And it was really rather exciting because what we learned that in a patient who is young, when the plaque is made up of inflammation, fat, and cholesterol, and the patient is so compliant, really remarkable things can happen. Uh, on the other hand, what happens if patients are more, more senior and the plaque is now made up of fibrosis, scar, and calcification? It's less likely to move, but even those patients are going to get back to full activity of daily living without restriction. And it's going to be my ob obligation to, in this evening with you to show you how that happens. Now, here just is another example. What you're looking at here is a 45-year-old gentleman from Florida, had a heart attack on July 14th, 2017. And here in his angiogram, the arrow is pointing to the a branch of the obtuse marginal, which was 80% blocked. And he had a, a number of other blocks, blockages and his cardiologist said, you've got to have bypass surgery. But the patient said, no, I've been reading a book, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease, and uh, I'm going to try that. And the cardiologist said it won't work. So it was, lo and behold, uh, a year later, July of 2018, the cardiologist wanted another angiogram. It was no longer 80% blocked. It was now 40% blocked. So at this point, the patient decided to switch cardiologists. But even this new cardiologist, a year and a, a, year and a half later, wanted another uh, angiogram. And now it was all gone. Now, this patient brings up a point. There was no single doctor helping this patient make this decision. And the decision cost him, it was no money, and there was no risk of injury or death with, with stents or bypass. And he simply absolutely vanquished his disease. And it really brings up a very important point. With something, something that is so simplistic and so effective, why isn't that every patient with cardiovascular disease isn't at least offered the option of plant-based nutrition? Because this patient, uh, the only reason I found out about it was he, after this last angiogram, he, uh, he wrote me a letter and sent me these angiograms thanking me for writing the book, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease. Now, 
with still working with that original group, uh, yes, of the original 24, there were six guys, nice guys, whom I released from the study within the first month because I had no money for the study and they simply were not going to be compliant. But we had 18 that stayed with us for uh, 12 years. And I wanted to know, in the uh, eight years prior to coming into our study, how many events of disease progression under the care of expert cardiologists had these patients sustained? And there they are, 49 events scattered in the categories that I have listed here. Now, however, once those 18 patients came into our care, over the next 12 years, 17 of those 18 had no further events. And I really, uh, it was a, one of the patients who were compliant while he was totally misbehaving in uh, China on the vacation. And he had a tendency to be hypertensive. He had a small stroke from which he recovered. But the only reason we put him in the uh, uh, <laughs> compliant group was because if we hadn't, we would have had 100% success. And that would have, I think, raised a lot of curiosity <laughs> among our critics. All right. So as excited and proud as I was about the results that we were getting, not everybody felt that way. Dr. Esselstyn, that's a pretty small study. Dr. Esselstyn, you did not randomize. That was not, and Dr. Esselstyn, what makes you think you could ever repeat another study, a larger study and get similar results? So we did. And we had two of the 200, we were two lost to follow-up, which left us with 198. Of the 198, 177 were compliant with our approach. That makes it 89.3, almost 90% who were compliant. Uh, those who were not compliant uh, were 21 patients. Now, people wonder, how, how is it you get uh, close to a 90% compliance when, with such a ra rather significant uh, nutritional change? And if you are going to have your patients make a successful change, you must show the patient respect. The only way that I know to show a patient respect is to give them my time. So the way our present setup works, I run a cardiovascular disease seminar once a month for about 20 people. It's a five and a half hours, but we average about 20 patients per month with this. And, and I insist upon calling each one of them personally myself uh, two weeks before before the seminar so that I can get my arms around their story and at the same time have an opportunity for them to ask questions of me so that when we do come to the seminar, we have a strong platform from which we can all move forward. Uh, I mentioned the one patient in the adherent group who really shouldn't, shouldn't have been in that group who had the small stroke. The 21 patients who were non-adherent, 62% had disease progression. Now here I wanted to I wanted to share our results with the better known results in cardiovascular disease, and if we look at this slide first on the box on the right, that's the Leon Diet Heart Study, where at the end of four years, twenty five percent had heart attack, stroke, or death, a major cardiac event. If we go to the box to the left of that, the Natural History of Coronary Disease 
a study out of Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in New York City. At the end of four years, 20% heart attack, stroke, and death. To the left of that, Bill Bolden's Courage study, at the end of uh, four years, 19.4% heart attack, stroke, and death. Now we go to the left. <laughs> there, there we are. T-T-C. That stands for treating the cause. That's that one patient. That result of ours was over 30-fold different from those other ones. And you might say, well, why in the world were we getting these results? And the reason, quite simply, is we were doing what is rather old-fashioned. We were educating patients about the causation of their disease. And there's been a basic covenant of trust between the caregiver and the patient since the days of Hippocrates that whenever possible, the caregiver will share with the patient what is the causation of the illness. And sadly today, in cardiovascular medicine, that is not being done. So when you total like a comparison, stents and bypasses with the diet, there's no mortality with the diet, no morbidity with the diet. There's no extra expense you got to eat. And the benefits improve with the passage of time. And when you think about it, it's interesting that usually almost any patient who's had a heart attack is now walking around with the sword of Damocles hanging over their head, wondering, when do I get the next heart attack? When is the other shoe going to fall? Well, hopefully they recognize very soon that they themselves are empowered as the locus of control to absolutely halt this disease. Now, what about this? On the left, you're looking at a pulse volume on the right ankle of a 54-year-old gentleman with heart disease and also with a partial blockage in his right thigh. <laughs> this was his uh, pulse volume when we first started seeing him. And I was so focused on his heart, I kind of forgot about his leg until about 10 months into his study. He said to me one day, Dr. Esselstyn, do you recall when I started seeing you, I had to stop five times crossing the skyway to your office because of pain in my right calf? I said, yes. He said, over the last month, it's gone away. And I said, well, then back you go to the vascular lab. And now you can see on the right, his new pulse volume. It was absolutely double. So we now had, right in the infancy of our study, we now had rock solid, irrefutable data that food and food alone could absolutely halt and reverse disease. And somebody's gonna say, well, well, now wait a minute. What about the statin drugs? Listen, 1986, we didn't have any statin drugs. Yeah. That's, so that's two examples I've shown you tonight of the profound disease reversal without statins. It's so it's really wonderful when you get it to make the food do its job. Now, here's another. This was a 78-year-old retired high school chemistry teacher who in his retirement, he and his wife liked to enter square dance contests, but it was during the fast square dance. He kept getting bilateral claudication or pain in his calf muscles. So he saw these vascular surgeons who got the, uh, the images that you see here, and he didn't like the big operation that they were suggesting he have. And he came to see us and said, Dr. Esselstyn, if I choose your method, how long will it take me to get rid of 
my calf pain. So I looked at him with great wisdom in my face. And I said, probably about nine or 10 months. Three months later, I got a phone call. Dr. Esselstyn, you do not speak the truth. The pain is gone. Now, I don't know what it's like in your areas of California, but when in Cleveland, if you're watching on television, uh, either a sporting event or a mystery, just before the advertisement comes on, you will hear the mellifluous tones of the announcer say something like, when the moment is right, will you be ready? Now, we all know that the penile artery is much smaller than the coronary artery to the heart. So not infrequently, before somebody comes down with heart disease, they may find that they are no longer able to uh, raise the flag. However, all is not lost, not, inf not infrequently. Uh, nine or 10 months after I've counseled somebody, I'll get a phone call. Dr. Esselstyn, yes, this is Mr. So-and-so. Yes, nice to hear your voice. Yeah, Doc, I really thought I ought to give you a call because recently something has come up and I'm wondering if I don't owe you another check. <laughs> now, what you're looking at here on the left is a PET scan. And where the orange or the yellow is, is a reasonably good perfusion. But you can see on the image on the left, there is an area that is green, which is poor perfusion. So that's the day that I counseled him. And he came back three weeks later and we repeated it. And in three weeks, now those areas that had been poorly perfused before were now generously perfused. Think of that. Although we got the, although we got the repeat PET scan in three weeks, obviously for it to be like that, it had to be before three weeks. So I think we can say with confidence that very, when you make this kind of profound change with patients, how promptly, even before three weeks, that the reversibility can start. And you can see this in patients because within two, four, six, eight, or 10 days, they'll say to you, my God, that chest pressure is letting up, seems to be going away. Now, I didn't understand what was going on when I, this was a phenomenon I was first observing. And because uh, how in the world can you reduce a plaque that's made up of all this fibrosis and inflammation and scarring enough to get something going in three weeks? And finally, I think I got it figured out. Here, what you see, obviously, is a heart where it's totally made up of blood vessels. And you can see the three main coronary arteries, the right coronary artery, the left anterior descending, and the circumflex. Those are the ones that get all the publicity. They are running on the surface of the heart. They're the ones that get the stents, they get the bypasses. But where do they go? They all, every single one of them, eventually goes where? It dives into the heart muscle, where it's supposed to go to deliver oxygen and nutrients. But with this wonderful slide, you can see all those thousands and thousands of interconnecting intramuscular arteries. So at this point, I called to Rodriguez, who is the chairman of the Cleveland Clinic Pathology, who dissects 200 hearts a year from the deceased. And I asked Rod, I said, how often do you ever see 
blockage or plaque once the artery has dived into the heart muscle? His answer, never. Now I had the answer. Here, here's what was going on. How did those patients get reperfused, get rid of their pain? Because when I first see these patients come to the office, they're really at this off, often at the end of the rope. The rope. And <clears throat> the endothelial cells are so beaten up, they're barely making any nitric oxide, the vessel dilator. And your endothelial cells have now become your enemy. They are making two molecules, endothelin and thromboxane, which are vasoconstrictors. So think about it. As you're looking at this slide, all of those thousands upon thousands upon thousands of interconnecting intramuscular arteries, none of them have plaque inside them, but they are all pinched and narrowed because of the molecules of endothelin and thromboxane, which your beaten up endothelial cells are elaborating. But what happens so excitedly is that as soon as these patients start to convert, they eat whole food plant-based nutrition. Suddenly they start pouring out more nitric oxide, the vessel dilator, and they become your friend again. They stop making endothelin and thromboxane, which are your vasoconstrictors. So think about it. As you look at that slide, all of those thousands and thousands of interconnecting intramuscular vessels, which are narrowed and pinched, boom, they all open up. And that is a huge, huge change. If you recall in physics, Poisset's law, a throw through the hollow viscous is related to the fourth power of the radius. Translation, tiny increase in diameter, huge increase in flow, which explains why even these more senior patients uh, will uh, get some wonderful relief. As a matter of fact, it, it calls to mind, I don't have this on a slide because it just came in last week. I will share with you, I was, uh, two years ago, I got a call from Montreal, Canada, from an engineer. And he had had an angiogram which showed that he had blockages in four, five arteries. And he was seeing the, the hotshot cardiologist and the most prominent bypass surgeon in Montreal. And they looked at his x-rays and said, you're in deep trouble. You, you have to have an urgent bypass. Well, he was an engineer. And he said, I'm not quite ready for that. And he somehow found my book and he called me and we talked for about an hour. And uh, then I didn't hear from him for about uh, actually two years, just last week. He called and said, Dr. Esselstyn, I really wanted to call you because I just was seeing my cardiologist. We had another angiogram and the blockages that were 70% are now down to 30%. And uh, the cardiac surgeon came to see this as well as the cardiologist. And they both agree that I am no longer a candidate for bypass surgery. But the sad part of the story is I said, did they ever ask you what you had been doing? No, they had no, no interest in what he was doing to make this happen. All right, so <laughs> let's do this. Let's summarize what we've learned about disease reversal. You can see it on the angiogram. We've shown you that. It happens with a stress test. I've just shown you the PET scan. We've seen reversal with the carotid artery, the arteries to the leg, the pulse volume, 
And the three symptoms of angina, claudication, and erectile dysfunction, another example of disease reversal. Now, I don't know if how many of you have ever been uh, to Cleveland, but I wanted to show you, this is the A building where for many years I worked on the eighth floor as a surgeon. But really what I'd like you to see is what the trees look like in Cleveland in February. <laughs> now, after I retired from surgery, I was rehired by the clinic because of my interest in nutrition. And I worked at the Wellness uh, Institute. And I should tell you that the Wellness Institute, the budget is much more modest, but the uh, morale is quite high. <laughs> now, <clears throat> one thing I've learned in some 61 years from leaving medical school, I always like to share this because Nothing perhaps is, while brains are important, nothing is as important as persistence, 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 best exemplified by this young damsel, Life Magazine, 1939, trying to learn how to do the split, splits. Sure enough, the other day, I guess it was in Berkeley, that somebody had spotted her and she got it right. And I wanna say thank you, Hans, thank you, AJ, Thank you, audience from California, for this wonderful, pleasant evening I've had, and I'd be happy to uh, try to answer any of your questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Esselstyn. If you don't mind, I'm going to ask you to stop sharing your screen right now, or maybe I can do that for you so we can see you. Sure, you can do that. Let's see. Where's the little button that gets you to stop? Stop participant sharing. Then we can see you nice and big. I'm going to spotlight you. I don't know if you can see everybody, but we can certainly see you. And we appreciate you staying up so late for us. And I did see a few questions in the chat. And the first one I saw was actually, how can we increase our nitric oxide? Well, I yeah, I tried to go through that. One thing you, you want to do is you want to have the best set of endothelial cells that you possibly can. And the way to do that is obviously to eliminate the foods that are gonna injure your endothelial cells. So you get rid of the oil, animal protein, dairy, sugar. I don't like coffee, caffeinated coffee. And if you, if I ever give the green light to nuts, you know, one or two nuts would be all right, but nuts are highly addicting. And, they are, <laughs> and there's a study, there's an interesting study in the, Actually, it was in the journal Atherosclerosis in the mid-1970s mid by Dr. Veselinovich, who took uh, three different groups of rhesus monkeys, and over a 12-month period, they fed them either butterfat, corn oil, or peanut oil. And uh, at the end of the year, they sacrificed the animals and looked at the arteries, and they were just blown away how the peanut oil was just absolutely devastating the artery. Thank you. Cheryl says, is systolic or diastolic is one more important than the other? I think they're both they're both <laughs> they're both equally important. I wouldn't I wouldn't trash one of one over the other. Okay. And Rochelle says, can you talk about tofu and tempeh? I've heard you now say that we can have it. Well, yeah, but I don't I, I don't think I'd go remember now soy is 40% fat. And there is a lot of uh, IGF. Now, I, insulin growth factor is kind of exciting and sort of important when you're young and you're growing in your early years or your teenage years. But 
After that, my good friend Colin Campbell has reinforced with me that you don't want too much IGF when you get older because that's a tumor promoter. And so, uh, I, yeah, I think you could have soy a couple of times a week, but it's the, the most pure soy, of course, is Enamabe. It hasn't been processed. Right. Here's a question from Penny. Why would cardiac output decrease during the cardiac catheterization after the administration of nitric oxide, which was given for trial of treatment for pulmonary hypertension? Uh, well, pulmonary hypertension, the uh, pulmonary artery pressure is, is too, uh, really is too high. And it finally wears out the right ventricle. Uh, but the whole idea of, of wanting to optimize nitric oxide in that group of patients is if you can get the nitric oxide to do its job and dilate that pulmonary artery and its branches, then it will decrease the pulmonary artery uh, level of pressure, ease up the strain on the right ventricle, and these patients will be really much better off. Wow, thanks. And uh, Angela said, could you explain what IGF is? And the insulin growth factor. All I can say about that is it's, as you say, it's the growth factor. This is something which, remember, I just mentioned a moment ago that it was so important as part of your, your growth spurt when you're young and when you're in your teenage years. But again, you know, uh, if you've got cells that are going to be malignant uh, in your adult years, whether it's breast, prostate, colon, pancreatic, whatever, you know, I don't think you want them to have your body or those tumor cells uh, exposed to insulin growth factor. Great. Thanks. Vernita says, how did your study participants deal with cravings for non-healthy foods? Well, you know, it's interesting that uh, you look at, you, you have to look at this, I think, in two ways. One is that uh, we've known for what, almost 100 years that there are multiple cultures on the planet Earth where cardiovascular disease is virtually non-existent. And they don't, and those people in those cultures, which have been doing this for hundreds of years, do not ever thrash themselves or beat themselves over the head because they're not having a milkshake or it's just a, or some crazy other Western cheeseburger and pizza. They're not ever crazy craving that. And I think that the thing that really works for these patients is if I can get them to understand, if they've got a brain in their head and they understand the relationship, and this is why I hammer it and hammer it and hammer it, the relationship between the endothelial cells and nitric oxide and their coronary artery disease. Let me give you an example. Two weeks ago, I was counseling a couple when the uh, the husband had had a heart attack and the uh, I had spent about an hour <clears throat> hour with him, went over all the, <clears throat> the mechanisms. And I got through and the wife said, Dr. Esselstyn, you haven't told us what are the cheat days. I said, would you expel that? She said, yes, C-H-A-T, cheat. I said, you mean if your husband's good all week long and <clears throat> and you want him to eat what he wants on Saturday and Sunday. She said, yeah, that's right. <clears throat> so I said, well, now think about it this way. 
your husband has just had this heart attack. And now you're asking me if 104 days out of 365, you want him to further destroy his few remaining endothelial cells so he can have another second heart attack. Oh, she said, I didn't think of it that way. Yeah, but didn't, didn't you once I say that it, it does take a while for the fat re receptor to downregulate so that the people can yeah, really start yeah, to enjoy the food? You, you've got a great memory. Yeah, it takes about uh, about 12 weeks. That's according to the Monell Chemical Census Center in Philadelphia. And so if they're constantly having these cheat days, th then they're, it's never going to they're never going to neuroadapt to the, the deliciousness of the low fat diet. Yeah, exactly. They're never going to downregulate that separate receptor. What the heck happened? Why is this uh, this screen sharing thing? What is this? I just shrunk. <laughs> yeah, I know what I, I've never seen this happen before. How do I get rid of this? Oh, boy. Ah, there you're back. Good. All right. Uh, Kathy says, can you please talk about vegan processed foods and how damaging they are? I need help. Well, I, I, what, you, what you have to look for is when you get vegan processed food, often they'll have oil in them, right? Maybe some of them will have heme. Look at these things. What was it? Beyond Meat and the Impossible Burger. I mean, I had one patient who switched into those and had a heart attack. I mean, it's just uh, just too much. You really, you really want to eat food as grown. Yes. <clears throat> yep, absolutely. Amy asks, do you think that partial compliance with your food plan will uh, with with a food plan will create reversal, or does it take a hundred percent compliance? I've heard some say ninety five percent is enough. Well, I'm, I'm uh, with all due respect, uh, uh, there's a healthy divergence of opinion here. I, uh, I like 100% because the way I look at it, if somebody calls me and says, Dr. Esselstyn, you'd be proud of me. I'm following your program 80%. Well, now, wait a minute. That is, I said, that's not my program because <laughs> when you think about it, that means all year long, 20% of every day, you are trying to further destroy the few remaining endothelial cells you may have. Why do you why do you want to divine design a diet that is going to destroy your ability to save your vascular system? No, I don't. I'm I'm tough. The reason <laughs> the reason my program succeeds where others may fail is because nobody else is as mean as I am. <laughs> <laughs> Well, here's an interesting uh, question from Dina. She says, are you aware of the new study promoting olive oil that Dr. Kim Williams and Dr. Joel Kahn have talked about recently? They seem to be okay with olive oil now and before they were oil-free. Well, why don't we do this? Why don't we have Kim and Joel show us their patients seriously with heart disease where they've had all this oil and they've been able to show either mammogram, mammograms or pulse volume or PET scans. Not mammograms. No, not mammograms. <laughs> Angiograms, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, with all due respect, <laughs> if we have a wholesome divergence of opinion, right now uh, we, uh, we've got a winner and uh, I want to see theirs. 
Yeah. Well, even if it's not detrimental, I mean, so many people are overweight and I'm not, I don't see how having adding oil to their diet is going to help them. Oh, there's, yeah, there's hardly any vitamins in it. There's no fiber in it. What you're getting is fat calories. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That's not what we need. And anyway, you just don't need it. Any liquid works. <laughs> you tell a man, that's right. right. Don't need it. Well, what about ghee, Dr. Esselstyn? DJ's doctor said it's good. Her, the Indian doctor said to put it in uh, the coffee oh, during fasting. Ghee is, ghee is clarified butter. Remember, I, I already told you about what happens with butter fat and the rhesus monkeys. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, with this love affair with fat in our in our culture. Peter asks if nitroglycerin impacts endothelial function. Nitroglycerin impacts, yes. It's, it's, it, yes, it's another way to try to squeeze out some nitric oxide. But it, it, but it also, there is some work that suggests that uh, the nitroglycerin can be a little bit hard on your endothelial cells if you're using it chronically. Mm. So yeah. I, I yeah. pay eat in a way that they get rid of their symptoms and they don't have to Right. They don't have to use it. Here's an interesting question from, from Steph. Is cardiovascular health a good proxy for brain health? Why not? Sure. Cardiovascular health, you got a good flow to your brain. You know what happens when you don't get a good flow to your brain? You start having strokes or minor stroke. What was it? Megan Leary and her team uh, from the West Coast uh, did an interesting study where they reported in 2001 at the stroke meetings in Miami. And what they did, they had looked at over 5,500 MRIs of the brains of Americans. And what they begin to see at age 50 are these tiny little white spots, you know, little stroke. But, you know, at age 50, big brain, tiny stroke, not a problem. But suddenly, you're 65 years of age. And what happens now? You're 65. You find yourself saying more often than before, sweetheart, where did I leave the car keys? Well, you get through that. Bingo, you're 75. You look at her and you say, sweetheart, where did I leave the car? <laughs> <laughs> now so, suddenly you're 85 and you look at her and you say, who are you my sweetheart? I can't <laughs> stop that. I can't reverse that. Yeah. You don't suddenly develop dementia at age 85. You work hard in all those preceding decades to lay the foundation. For that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Christina wants to know, how do you get a patient to follow this diet? I have family members who have been sick and on meds for years, but they do not stick to a diet plan. I don't understand it. Well, what really what it does require is education. And you cannot do this in, in five minutes. I think I made it very clear. The reason that we're getting, getting close to 90% is we're able to show the patient respect and that means giving them our time. One day, five hours, and two weeks before that, an hour personally with me to have them understand the mechanisms involved. So that when they repeat it again at the seminar, are these, uh, are these patients really are kind of sometimes elated to think that the mystery is gone and now they know how they created their disease. Yeah. Cynthia would like to know if high blood pressure is considered cardiovascular disease. Her husband doesn't think so. Yes. Well, you can play with the, with the words all you want. 
But hypertension is a brutal disease, brutal. Yeah. Lissa says, is there help for a dear friend who's already been through two bypass surgeries? Yeah, if they, if they, uh, I, I would be surprised if they had been totally committed to whole food plant-based nutrition and to have to have these repeated uh, surgeries. I would, uh, I would think that that patient is somebody who ought to see a practitioner who has a special interest in whole food plant-based nutrition, who can give them the time, the information, and the knowledge base so that they can halt any further progression of this disease. Uh, Donna would like to know what the negative effect of caffeine is on the heart. And Julie said, well, what about drinking green tea or matcha in place of coffee? Yeah, green tea, black tea is fine. It's to what does caffeine do to the heart that it's not recommended? What caffeine does with a coffee, that is caffeine and coffee, that combination, uh, there's a Greek, a Greek study and an Italian study that uh, clearly to me, well, I'll tell you what the Italian study, two groups of young subjects divided, one group having coffee with caffeine, the other having decaf, and then they had the brachial artery test to determine the function of the endothelial cell. But before that, they switched groups. So the group that was previously having coffee with caffeine was now decaf. Wow. When they summarized the results, it was always the group that was consuming coffee with caffeine that injured endothelial output of nitric oxide. Yeah. I've got time for three more questions. Okay, perfect. Thank you. So um, Meryl wants to know, besides balsamic vinegar and rice vinegar, are there any other vinegars that you recommend to eat with steamed grains, like maybe well, apple cider I'm or? Sure, I'm sure there would be, but I, I was lim limiting my recommendations to the, the, to the ones that had undergone the research. I mean, it may very well be that there are others, but I would be hesitant to have any patients exposed to that until I had research rock solid data that it was safe. Okay. So, yeah. And Mary wants to know what your thoughts are about uh, supplementation with omega-3 algae supplementation. I think that the jury is still out on that. I, uh, if you want, if you have your omega-3 checked, and you get one of three results. Either it's mod, uh, excuse me. Either it's low, or it's uh, uh, modest, middle, anyway, or it's plentiful. And usually, if you're down, in, when it's in the midstream or low, uh, it's perfectly fine to take omega three algae. Uh, but I'm I'm not a great fan of supplements other than B12. Great. Okay, this is the third and final question from Jeffrey. I've been hearing that vitamin K2, specifically MK7, is good to take as a supplement to decrease arterial calcification. Do you agree? Well, I don't use it. Uh, if somebody comes to our program and they're taking it, I don't stop it. If they're not taking it, I don't start it. Uh, I, I think the jury is out. You kind of ask yourself, Gosh, K2, is that what they're taking in rural China or Okinawa or <laughs> <Yeah>. Africa? 
Hey guys, it's been great. Yep, I'm just gonna ask everybody to unmute and thank you so much for this presentation. So guys, you're all able to unmute now. So let's just- Thank you so much. Thank, thank you very much, Dr. Russell. Thank you. 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 Thank you so very much thank you. for your Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank you, Chef AJ. Thank you, Chef AJ. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Oh, there's Anne. Look at Anne. Oh, there's Anne. Wonderful presentation. Thank you. It was wonderful. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Deal and Betty and Bernita. Dr. Deal, Bernita, Betty, and Chef AJ. Thank you. Look in the show notes because there is a support group with a Zoom twice a month, and that information is in the show notes. Good night, everyone. Thank you for being here. Bye bye. Good night.